the best things, the most precious things in life you cannot buy. They're just simply not for sale. You cannot buy a talent, even a technical ability. You need to work. And the bigger the talent, the more you have to work at it. You cannot buy love or real friends. You cannot buy a sense of style. You cannot buy good manners. You have to develop them. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. In 2016, I visited the city of Greensboro, North Carolina, to interview Dmitry Sitkovetsky, a gifted violinist and conductor and music director of the Greensboro Symphony Orchestra. I also had the pleasure to attend a special concert by the symphony featuring Mr. Sitkovetsky and guest violinist Pincus Zuckerman and his wife, cellist Amanda Forsyth. Mr. Sitkovetsky was born into an illustrious musical family in the former Soviet Union, where he received his musical training. He has made more than 40 recordings over the course of his career, as well as performing as a soloist with many of the world's leading symphony orchestras, including the Berlin Philharmonic, Chicago Symphony, Cleveland Symphony, Los Angeles Philharmonic, NHK Symphony in Japan, and the New York Philharmonic. I'm Dmitry Sitkevetsky, violinist, conductor, arranger. I've made a number of transcriptions, which started as my musical hobby, but now it's sort of a parallel profession as well. And also, I've, in the past, I've run a number of international music festivals. And uh, also, I've just uh, finished a big project for the Russian uh, TV channel Kultura, uh, which involves interviews with some of my illustrious colleagues. So I made 12 of those, and 10 of those will go on Medici TV. So there's a lot of things that I do in, in the world of music and the arts. So the way my family story came about, I'm the fourth generation of professional musicians in my family. My mother uh, is the great pianist Bella Davidovich, who lives in New York, she's 87. And she came over to America later than I did, almost two years later. But I uh, grew up in Russia. And on my father's side, they were all string players. My father was one of the greatest violin talents of the 20th century, but he died very young at 32. And his recordings were a testament of the tremendous, uh, you know, uh, artistry that he had. And he was really, together with Leonid Kogan, the most prominent um, violin talent from Russia, the next generation after David Oistra. So, oh, in my case, since my family history starts from 1889, that's how long uh, my family's dynasty, musical dynasty goes. I mean, the choice, once I started showing some musical 
abilities or later on perhaps some talent. Uh, it was really just a choice between the violin and piano. But since my father was gone when I was only three and a half years old, of course, it was very much the family's wish that I would continue the tradition and become a violinist rather than a pianist. And so it happened that uh, my mother took me to a famous violin pedagogue, Yuri Yankilevich, who was a teacher of some of the best Soviet violinists of that time, of the 60s, like Tretyakov and uh, Spivakov and Lanzmann and many others. So she took me, I was probably five and a half or something like that at that time, and he said, you know, the son of Julian Sitkovetsky uh, playing the violin is going to be a lot of pressure on him to live up to the legend of his father. So let me give him to uh, an assistant for six months. And then later on, I could assess whether he really should be playing the violin or, or doing something else. So he did. And... Um, Six months later, he said, listen, I'm convinced he has to be a violinist. Uh, he has different type of talent than his father. And uh, I'm pretty sure that he should just pursue that as his profession. So that was the beginning of my lifelong relationship with the violin. But I was just as interested in other things apart from uh, just the treble clef of the violin line. And just to interrupt a bit, are there any stories that go back to the first member of this, this line, this lineage of musicians, how that person came to music? Mm, like my great-grandfather. Yeah. Well, in those days, you know, in Russia, especially the Russian Jews, had very limited uh, possibilities to be a full members of the society in Tsarist Russia. And so that's the reason why you have such dominance of the Russian Jews of being the best violinists of number of generations. You know, you have, uh, first of all, Leopold Auer, who came to St. Petersburg to teach. He was a Hungarian Jew, but he was already you know, recognized uh, international uh, name, violinist, and also a wonderful pedagogue. But he managed to attract all the great talents from, you know, be it Ukrainian part of Russia at that time, from Odessa, from Vilnius. Yasha Heifetz came, of course, and became the most famous of his students, but he also had Nathan Milstein, he had Misha Elman, he had Tosha Seidel, he had uh, many extraordinary um, students. Most of them were Russian Jews because that was one of the few professions that they were allowed to be in the Russian Tsarist society. I interviewed one person who had a wonderful story about how his grandmother and father were supposed to be on the Titanic, mm. had tickets, 
and uh, but then stopped to see a family in Dusseldorf, I believe, and and got to Southampton an hour or two late, too late. Yeah. and s- survived as a result of that. And it's a very touching story. But his his uh, grandfather, I guess, had played in the Tsarist Orchestra. This is a Jewish family, yeah, and. Uh, so I just that's really the only time I've heard stories related to this history. Oh well, the history is quite quite fascinating because the Heifetz's fate was decided really by an older student, kind of assistant of ours. He was just a senior student in Saint Petersburg Conservatory. His name was Yevrem Zimbalist, who of course founded the Curtis Institute in this country. Uh, he saw this boy with his father lost, sort of looking lost in St. Petersburg Conservatory. And he said, what is the matter? And they said, well, we came to play for Professor Auer, but uh, he has no time to listen to my boy, said the father. And uh, we only have a few hours before he was supposed to leave because they were the Jews were given just a 24 hours to stay in the capital city. Then they had to leave and go back to Vilno, which was not around the corner. It was hours and hours on the train. And uh, so he said, maybe you would listen to him. So I said, okay. And then the young Heifetz, who was, I don't know, seven, eight years old, played and then, Zimbalist realized that he's got an extraordinary uh, boy in front of him. So he took him to Auer's class. And Auer said, no, no, I'm busy. And they said, Professor, really, you have to hear this boy. And so he played for him. And then Auer realized that he had a miraculous talent in front of him. So he went straight to Glazunov, a famous Russian composer who was the head of the uh, conservatory, St. Petersburg Conservatory, And they made a very smart move, both. Uh, Glazunov came up with an idea that both of them should be enrolled into ours class. One into ours class was his father. It was not because he was going to study, but because the boy needed somebody to uh, to be looked after. And then the boy was enrolled into the assistance class. And that's how Heifetz's fate was decided had he not run into Zimbalist or Zimbalist didn't have the time who knows he could have been killed in pogroms in Vilnius and we would have never known the greatest violinist of the 20th century this is how chance plays Mm -hmm. you know in one's life uh, a role in one's life and in my case my fate was pretty much determined because of you know I was already part of the dynasty and what I did I changed that fate because I want I knew the system very well the Soviet system I knew all the greatest artists of my time David Oistrakh and uh, Leonid Kogan and uh, of course Mstislav Rostropovich and all the great pianists Richter and Gillis and I knew exactly who were at the summit of the profession because my mother was also one of them uh, and uh, I just didn't like the system, the political system, the lack of personal freedom. And also I wanted to know what I could do 
on my own without the support and the limitations of the system. Uh, you know, it's it's silly to say that, oh, they were just, you know, it was a terrible regime. I mean, we should be so lucky to have that educational system that there, that existed in uh, Soviet Union. It was unparalleled. I mean, Moscow Conservatory at that time was far superior to any, uh, and Central Music School had simply no equals in the world. And all the education was free. Mm-hmm. It was only based on your abilities. You could be from, you know, as far a place as Vladivostok, which is practically Japan. But if the boy or girl showed a significant talent, you would be transferred to Moscow eventually from all those I regional see. schools and you would make it without paying a cent for your education. What is there, 11 time zones in the original Soviet Union? or At least nine that I know of, nine, nine. times. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly big, yeah. big territory. You have a memory of the first time when you played the violin, the instrument itself, where suddenly something occurred, where you, you felt irrespective of all these people that see talent in you where you just said no i I, I was just you know in my mom's womb i was already on stage and i heard all the sounds (laughs) no it it doesn't work like this in in musical families you know all of a sudden you heard the violin and you felt you know that's your (laughs) destiny no i mean i was surrounded by violin sound by piano sound i grew up under my mother's piano i mean i heard nothing but the best and i was surrounded by the greatest geniuses of my time. So when they tell me now, oh, so-and-so, this child prodigy is a genius, they use the word so cheaply. I said, come on, don't don't fool yourself. Certainly you won't fool me. This is just a gifted youth. Let's see what's going to happen to him or to her. I grew up among the giants. Don't tell me that this one is is anything more than a gifted child. And I'll fish a little further for this, and I may not find what I'm looking for here. So you, as a young person, had access to probably pretty high-end violins. Well, the violins were not always uh, the property of, of the violinists. It was a property very often of the state collection. And David Oyster had wonderful uh, Stradivari, but uh, even two, I think, at that time. Leonid Kogan played Del Jesu. But it was certainly not uh, an everyday occurrence that you would come up against. You, you come and, you know, go go to a concert and hear. I remember when Isaac Stern came to play or Henrik Schering came to play and they had fabulous violence. It was, it was an event as well, not only their playing and their appearance, but also their instruments. And I remember the first time I played on the Strad, and that was a remarkable um, a story because uh, in 1966, I was not quite 12 yet, uh, possibly the greatest cello talent uh, that I've come up, uh, I've come, I've played with was Jacqueline Dupre, who, who came to study with Rostropovich for one season in Moscow. And she was just uh, you know, out of this world. There was a, something uh extraordinary about her and it just so happened that her uh friend came from Cleveland I think he was a doctor an amateur violinist and he had this he brought a, a Stradivari violin and he wanted to play some chamber music so somehow 
it was held at my uncle's house. Oh, my uncle was violist uh, with the Moscow Philharmonic. And so we played the string quartets with Jacqueline Dupre playing the cello. And I was playing first violin. And uh, I was given this strat for the first time to, to try. And that was a great thrill. It was double thrill to play with such extraordinary artists as Jacqueline Dupre. And also to be able to put my hands on a great instrument like a Stradivari. Much later on, when I, in 77, so 11 years later, when I came to Juilliard and I was already a student of Galamian and also oh, chamber music was Felix Gallimer, my wonderful musician. And uh, he had a Strad, so I tried... Uh, he gave it to me to try a, a, a few times. I said, oh, that's a wonderful instrument. He said, don't worry. He said, soon you will have your own. And he was not that far from, from the truth because I acquired my Stradivari in 83. So it was just a few years. Yesterday, actually, we were just uh, comparing when uh, Pinkus Zuckerman bought his Del Jesu. It was in 1980, and I bought my Strad three years later in 83. In um, I, I bought it in Germany at that time. I was living there as well. So last night, these were the two instruments you played. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes. His and was, there was quite a difference in their town, their, their the musicality, of everything. Of course, of yeah, course. yeah. And I love the combination. I don't think I've ever had that opportunity before. It was absolutely delightful because they're, they're some of the finest examples of both makers. He's is one of the best Del Jesus around, uh, the famous Dushkin uh, Del Jesus, 1742. And mine is 1717, which is the best of the golden period okay. of the Strad. What's the story of that violin while we're here? It's called X Reifenberg. And it's it's curious that I I knew some story of the, of the instrument when I bought it. I knew that it belonged... Before the collector I bought it from in Germany, it belonged to Salvatore Accardo, Italian violinist. And uh, before that, it belonged to Jamie Laredo, who I know quite well, a uh, violinist who teaches uh, at the Cleveland Institute. And he's a, he was a Galaman student, winner of uh, Queen Elizabeth competition way back in 59. Before that, I knew that uh, Jacques Thibault played it, but never owned it. And uh, uh, the violin has a name, X Reifenberg, um, after the longest uh, owner who had this violin from the beginning pretty much of the 20th century till probably for good 30 or maybe even 40 years. And um, he turned out to be uh, a, a re relations uh, to a professor at Guilford College, just where the Dano Auditorium, uh, where we played last night. And uh, once an article came out about my instrument here in Greensboro, a professor of that um, college wrote to me, and then we met. And he turned out to be a distant relative of Reifenberg's. And he gave me a, a wonderful... A letter, a copy of a letter of Hugo Reifenberg. It was written in 1914. 
and he described to his sister how a wonderful soiree, chamber music evening, took place in his mansion in Paris, and there was uh, Jacques Thibault, Fritz Chrysler, uh, George Inescu, Pablo Casals, <laughs> and Egon Petri, a pianist, and what they played, and you know, and what went on. So, and he was the one who gave Jacques Thibault this my violin to play when he played trios with uh, uh, Pablo Casals and Alfred Corto. So it has a quite quite a history. Exactly. And uh, so you've owned it almost for a 40, long time. 50 uh, years? So, oh, no, th- since 83. So oh, 83. 83, that would be, uh, this year would be 33 years. 33 years. Yeah, and next year will be 300 years anniversary of my violin. Yeah, I have two makers making copy of my violin for that special and, occasion. And who are the makers that are, these are bench copies, as they call them? Well, they have, one is a um, Italian, I mean, he, he is based in Rome, but he's a Swiss maker, Claude Lebe, and he's based in Rome, and he's making a copy of it. And the other one is being done in by um, uh, Leonard of Violins in, in London. So uh, it's it's let's see which one is going to be better and closer in tone, especially. I mean, they could make it look like it, but to to have the sound, that's another matter. I've talked to several violin makers about this process of making bench right. copies, and, yeah, and and to what um, lengths they will go to get exactly the oh, wood yeah, and, and the varnish and so forth. Why does a musician want that? Well, I think it's it's nice. I, I'm one of those violins that actually could play on anything, as long as it has four strings and you know, uh, and more or less in tune. And you know, I could, I, and I've played on all kinds of violins. Sometimes I don't take my violin on certain uh, uh, trips, and um, I think at a certain level, you have your own sound, and it's of course your own violin will sound the best for you. No question about it. But you should be able to play to pick up a violin and. And just, you know, go. I remember when I had my festival in Seattle for five years, when the best collection, probably the best collection, private collection at that time was David Fulton in Seattle. And I used to come to his house in the afternoon, pick up a violin, would be Del Gesù or Stride, and then play the same night on that violin. So one should be able to do that. Uh, you have to have, of course, you adjust. And, but of, different violins have different measurements, have different sizes, even, you know. So you, uh, if you have a copy of, of your own, you know, it's easier to switch. And, um, but the, the, of course, the, the question is whether it would have a similar sound or possibility of sound. I mean, you develop a sound. My violin did not sound like this at all when I bought it. And it took years, really, for us to come together, both. I like that idea. I talked to an Irish fiddler about this, and he he's the first one who framed it. You know, the violin is learning you, and you're learning the violin. Absolutely. I mean, it's a mutually it's a mutual process. Yeah, I love that. You adjust to the violin, and violin adjusts to to me. I'm sure it won't play uh, the same for anyone else except me, and the same thing would be for Pincus's violin. I mean, I could pick it up and probably make decent sound out of it, but it will sound the best for him. The same thing for my violin.
Let's listen now to a portion of Bach's Double Violin Concerto, performed by Dmitry Sitkovetsky on his Stradivari violin and Pinkus Zuckerman on his Guarneri violin, in concert with the Greensboro Symphony Orchestra. Ask you a question. We were talking about David Fulton, and uh, I've, we've interviewed David for this series. Yeah, and uh, and got to, and he had some great stories. The base of Spain, yeah, long, yeah, yeah, yeah. complicated, wonderful story. Le Pacelle, how he came by it is yeah. almost as interesting. Who used to own it, and uh, she was sort of an eccentric, and it's a great story. What role do you see the collector playing in the course of this journey of the, this particular medium that we use? To um, to really uh, try to fulfill an aspiration, a yearning in us as, yeah. as human beings. I think it's a it's a bit of a contradiction when it comes to instruments, because at the time when all these great makers were making those violins, Stradivari never saw his violins again. He once he sold an instrument, that w- it was gone. That's it. They never came back to you know do repairs or anything. no. He just made them, and they were gone into the world. So they were not necessarily made into collections. Even though I mean, rich people bought it, and Galileo had had a Stradivari violin, you know, as well because he had, he, was, he had a great reputation in his lifetime. Stradivari. Oh yeah, but I didn't know about Galileo. Yeah, Galileo, absolutely. Yeah, because I was in Padova, and you know, oh, where Tartini uh, worked and died, um, and where you know, they know Italians know a lot because Padova is only half an hour drive now from Venice, and uh, you know, and also where, where Galileo was, but he had a Stradivari violin. So anyway, um, the. They were made to play. And that's important to remember. And violins, which are not played, uh, 
they close up. They lose sort of their sense of purpose. It's sort of like the finest racehorses when they just kept in the stable and they never race. They lose their abilities. And it happens to people too. Oh, of course, of course. At the same, on the other hand, and this is a big argument of David, we've, we've had those arguments, I've known David for many years. Uh, he thought of himself, oh, he th- I'm sure he still thinks of himself, but since then he sold quite a few uh, in his collection as the custodian of the finest instruments because he thought that the lifestyle that we have as traveling musicians is not good for preservation of those instruments. So what's more important, you know, to have the instrument in a museum or in a private museum, in a private collection, but they don't have their voices. They're not heard. And he would give uh, violins for a very short time, but not for a year. I, I used to uh, have this, not argument, but just so that I said, David, I'll leave my violin here. Give me the Caritas, which is like completely unplayed beast of a violin. But it's such a challenge for me to have it, but I need to have it for a year at least. I'll, I'll, I'll leave my strat at your house. Give it to me. I will return, you will not recognize this violin in a good way, in terms of tonal qualities. But unless somebody like me plays it, it won't happen. It will not happen in one or two weeks or even a month. You need to really dig in uh, artistically into, uh, to bring out the best, all the possibilities. So in a way, you, you, you preserve them, but you also cut down the whole purpose of uh, them being made to play. They were made to play. We were visiting the uh, museum, the Violin Museum in Cremona, and right. we interviewed uh, Paolo Bodini, who's the president of the museum and had started the Friends of Stradivari. Mm-hmm. Wonderful man and a physician, uh, just retiring, totally in love with these instruments. And you go in that museum, and uh, they're in these beautiful... Boxes boxes with little light pin lights on them. And they're just raised up to the level of of such sacred objects. Right. And I'm I'm fascinated by how relics were important and used and traded during the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, how St. Mark's Basilica was built in Venice because they had several considered, you know, exceptional relics. Yeah. And so I said to Paulo, I said, these really are, you've raised them to the level of relics of, of great significance, spiritual significance. And he said, yeah, that is what's happening. But then later, uh, at the end of the interview, he bemoaned the fact that the prices of these instruments have got grown so high. And I imagine from a practical point of view, there's insurance premiums that they have to deal with to, to stay in of business. Of course. And yet they are part of the process of this great mythology about these instruments, which take them out of the hands of players and more and more into the hands of Well, today I don't, I don't believe anybody really Bankers. from a, from a active young players can afford. I mean, I certainly couldn't afford to buy my violin today, but I could in 83. And, uh, you know, it was still a lot of money back then, but, you know, I could earn it by playing concerts today. There's no way. You have to have a violin from a foundation. Many active violinists today have, uh, you know, violins loaned to them. 
Uh, but at least, you know, it's, if it's a long-term loan, that's a good thing. Because I don't believe that anyone really possesses anything in this life. We're just custodians for a while. You know, my violin was with someone else before, and it will be after I'm gone. So I, I don't have that, that incredibly possessive feeling, no. What I possess is only what's inside of me, unseen things, and what I accumulated over the years. Uh, those qualities nobody can take away from me. Anything that can be taken from me, I do not possess. This brings me to an interesting question, at least for me. I was right. watching you last night uh, conducting. Right. And uh, I had this sense, and maybe I'm romanticizing this, but that that orchestra was your instrument in Absolutely. the same way the violin. And Absolutely. Speak to that, because, again, you wouldn't own those people. Mm-hmm. You know, but no, for some no, certainly reason, not. And, yeah. and, and tomorrow, when I see them again, you know, they might be in a different mood. They've they've been through different things, and yet tonight, after the chamber music concert, I will see a lot of them who are friends of mine and everything. But of course, it's a living instrument. You know, it's it's it's, it's there's always a moment of unexpected, and but that's what live performance is all about. You know, it's not a recording which is once and forever unchangeable. No matter how wonderful recording is, it, it doesn't change. Live performance, and the reason I went into conducting was that I just wanted uh, a larger instrument because I knew all along that not all the world is uh, contained in the treble clef, in the violin line. It's one of many lines in the score, even in the violin repertoire. A lot of, you know, there are basically two types of instrument, of musicians, basically, uh, that I noticed over the years. One that is completely identified with your voice, be it a singer or instrumentalist who can only express himself, his emotions, his feelings, his thoughts through a particular instrument. You take away that instrument, you've taken away the the voice. That person cannot express in any other way. They're, my mother, for instance, I mean, she's, she was completely happy and fulfilled on those 88 keys of the keyboard. And she was one of the greatest pianist with the most beautiful sound. But she, she never had any interest beyond that. Though, of course, she loved opera and she loved other pieces of the repertoire and genre, but she was completely happy in it. And I know quite a lot of, most of my uh, performing friends are like this. And yet there is another type that can express themselves in many different ways, uh, whether it's an instrument that you've played all your life or an orchestra or chamber music or some interesting creative project that just gets your, you know, your creative juices flowing. So that's the kind of a a type that I am. And so I, of course, I mean, violin and playing the violin is part of my body. If, If I'm only conducting for two, three weeks, I mean, I miss the violin terribly. And I always bring it with me 
um, I bring a violin, not necessarily my strat, but I, I, I need to have a phys physical contact to pre actually produce the sound in that, in that respect. I do need it, but I could certainly uh, get tremendous uh, satisfaction. I was just doing La Boheme, you know, opera, and that's a whole other, uh, you know, ball game with so many other elements, not only singers, but also staging and the orchestra and the sets and this and the language and the words. Timing. That's Timing, absolutely. But to be in charge of that, that's something very, very special. So there are many things that interest me uh, in the world of music apart from just uh, you know solo repertoire but I know a lot of my colleagues who are completely uh, zeroed in just to play solo and that's all they want to do could a person like that be a good conductor no absolutely not you have a very you know among the singers they have an interesting expression which is a good thing oh this one's got a singer's brain very interesting. So that smart vocally knows how to use the voice and what not to do with the voice. More importantly than what to do with the voice, a, uh, a singer's brain. This is an interest. So instrumentalists also they have an instrumental brain. You know they they know how to, and uh, but you can always tell. For instance. Many violinists are always thinking about, you know, the bridge and the, the, the sound post and uh, different strings and different... You know. I'm just the opposite. Charles Beer, who I know and love for many years, was also a very good friend with Pinkus Zuckerman, he said, you, you remind me of, of a old British uh, violinist, Ralph Holmes, he said, Ralph would only bring his violin if, if it was falling apart. And then he said, I'm sure it's just me, but maybe, Charles, you take a look at it. Well, that's, that's me, pretty much. I will never, you know, most violins, they go see violin make. I don't. I mean, they, I have some friends among the violin makers, and I, I'm happy to see if they come and see. But I never, I have a great instrument. I have wonderful French bows. You know, Picard and Tourt and, uh, you know, Grand Adam, which I played yesterday. And, you know, if something doesn't work, I know it's me. <laughs> I don't blame, <laughs> I don't blame it on, oh, if I only had this uh, string, set of strings or this other bow. Or, no, it's, it's, it's complete illusion. I know it's me, but occasionally they do come unglued or, you know, there's, they need some maintenance. So, so you need, you need to keep it in mind, of course. <laughs> I think it's because you didn't grow up in a consumer society. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was given what I was given, <laughs> and you had to make the best of it. There was no chance of yeah. upgrading it every other week. No, no way. Well, this is a, a something we've had this uh, discussion with other uh, musicians and also yeah. makers, that creativity really comes from limitation, not from possibilities. Absolutely, always. And we don't... We don't seem to imagine it that way no. in this country at this point. It you think you could, you could go, you know, and buy it online on Amazon.com these days or whatever. No. The best things, the most precious things in life you cannot buy. They're just simply not for sale. You cannot buy a talent, even a technical ability. You need to work. And the bigger the talent, the more you have to work at it. You cannot buy love or real friends you cannot buy a sense of style 
You cannot buy good manners. You have to develop them. You know, you cannot even buy charm. It's not for sale. There's some people who just come in and you do anything for them because they're charming. That's an incredibly important uh, quality. Is it for sale? I don't think so. <laughs> well, this is, we're, we're kind of far ranging, which I like. <laughs> yeah. Last night I noticed in the concert such an attentive audience, but an aging audience. Of course. A very much aging audience, more than I've realized um, in other concerts I've been to recently. You're right. And it might have been just a peculiar no, no, thing no, in it's, Greensboro. It's a trend, right? definitely. Yeah, and it, it made me really think about such, you know, just uh, wonderful music uh, and and wh where that aud next audience is going to come from. They're going to get old and come come to us. They're going to get older because, unfortunately, the way society is uh, sort of driven uh and also the attention spans consistently shorter and shorter ever since very early age. And all these wonderful devices, you know, like iPhones and all that, they only shorten our attention span, which is not good for what we do. You need sustained attention. For this, you need time also in your life. As you're making your career or you're you know you're pursuing your goals or you're starting a family you have young kids it's a problem to carve out a whole evening you know you have to rearrange your eating schedule you have to take you have to get babysitters you have to you know rearrange it's it's a i've seen you know it seems to me of course, at first I was very resentful of this because I grew up in a society where going to concerts was like a religious experience. I mean, they would drop everything and they would sacrifice everything. And they, it was not a question of parking because nobody had cars. They would just take public transportation. <laughs> I walk you know, a long here, way here, the night. biggest thing is how, what about parking? You know, <laughs> and VIP parking. Oh, please. I mean, you walk, you use your legs. You know, that's why we have legs. And it's not good not to walk. Anyway, but that's another thing. That's another, but in general, just, just practically speaking, in the American society, or just in European as well. Uh, until you reach pretty much 50, when you've made it or you've raised your children and uh, you've put them through college and, uh, you know, or they're already on their way, they've grown up and they have their own life, then you're beginning to carve out time, quality time for your leisure, for your soul's demand before it's all go 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 it's competitive uh, there's not enough time people work out of home they listen to music they do they listen to a lot of beautiful music but they listen to it in the car and at home while they do something else right. and when they relax coming out uh dealing again with traffic with you know big cities traffic and parking and eating out and it's expensive and also what's even more of a trend these days with big cities especially like new york philharmonic subscription used to be the 90 percent or 85 now it's below 50 people just don't want to commit ahead of time 
That's why movies are so easy. Even though people could watch movies on their computers or even iPhones, whatever. No, they still, it's communal experience. They could just, just say, oh, let's go now. What's playing now? Oh, it's not playing in this theater. It's playing in that theater. You can always catch a movie. Concert is one time or maybe twice on Thursday at 8 o'clock and Saturday 8 o'clock. And you, unless you make it, unless you make that window between 8 and 10, you missed it. It's not a Broadway show. Oh, you, you missed it on Tuesday. It'll be there on Wednesday, you know, and so forth. And for the next two years. <laughs> We have a, my wife's uh, family's had a cottage on a lake up in northern Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. uh, in fact, I wrote a novel uh, that starts with a, uh, a Russian admiral who's mm. fishing on a lake, and it was all inspired by this I lake. That. I imagined yeah. it as being Russia. Yes. But um, you know, a lot of those resorts there are struggling to stay uh, alive because it used to be that families every summer would go to this special place. Of course. Because many of these kind of rituals of the family would occur. But now it's like, well, we could go someplace else. Let's leave our options open so they won't commit. Exactly. They won't buy the, the property or, or that kind of thing. Yeah, when, when somebody, for instance, even just from a practical point of view, let's say I could afford to buy a holiday home somewhere, a beautiful place. But then you'd be sort of chained into it because you would have to every time you have you. I said, why? We could go to south of France one time and then we go skiing in Verbier in Switzerland another time and then we could go you know we've traveled Bali and Great Barrier Reef and everything but if you have a place you're sort of obliged to always go there it, it does limit your See, <laughs> it, so, right it cuts both ways <laughs> and we were talking about it when I first got here about you just arrived from London right so you are a jet setter in that regard I mean in you're dealing with respect. time changes, changes exactly. and all that including your instrument is. Very much so, yeah. And so uh, explain that dilemma, if it is, or uh, contradiction within what it means to be a musician mm. or, or a deep artist and yet be in this modern world of such speed of and change. Such speed, yeah. But it's, it's interesting because I do spend an ordinate amount of time, of course, on planes or trains or cars or moving vehicles. And a great day for me when I actually... Don't move anywhere. <laughs> I could just walk. Not the legs. Don't, don't even go into <laughs> my, my car. Though here, I don't consider that really moving. It's 10 minutes here, 5 minutes there, 15 minutes at the most in the car. So for me, that's, that's leisure. It's like being in one place. Uh, however, I do uh, surprisingly like my time on the planes or when I, when I travel because this is, especially on the plane, you don't get phone calls you don't get emails you don't get any messages you there and you sort of above this very busy world you suspended there at the time and all that i study very well there you know i study my scores and i make programs i watch movies which i love very much if there's some good ones playing or it might, might be my computer i do a lot of I never talk to anybody. I'm a very communicative person, as you probably noticed, and it's part of my job. On the plane, I never talk. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Not to the person next to me. Like, absolutely. And they don't bother me because I'm in, in my own world. This is my quiet time because every day I need to have quiet. 
hours every day because we, I, I lead a very public life. And uh, in order to recharge your batteries, you need to spend time on your own. And, uh, you know, obviously I keep in touch with my family, with my mother in New York, with my family in London. My daughter now is, you know, aspiring opera singer. So she goes around the world and I, you know, I keep in touch with her. My cousin's birthday is today. I, I just called Moscow and talked to my aunt as well. My other aunt is in New York and so forth. I have friends everywhere and they always like to keep in touch. There's a lot of communication going, but... Uh, I do keep, especially days of concerts or when I need to, uh, I need to keep the balance between the quiet time and the active time. And I think uh, you can arrange all your travels and all your, uh, it, you have to be the master of your own. You have to know your body also, how it responds, what, what you need to get over the jet lag, which I just got over eight hours jet lag from Moscow to uh, here and then next thing is going to be uh, six hours to Denmark so those are big big jet lags and I go through some seasons you know some years over 20 different jet lags so that's a lot mm -hmm. just six six uh, you know weeks that I do here is already 12 jet lags coming from Europe and plus you know other trips and far east and this and that and so forth um but you can if you have inner peace of some sort and when they say oh it's such a lonely life yes and no because i travel with wonderful companions i always travel with bach and mozart and uh, prokofiev and uh, shostakovich and brahms and mendelssohn and for me, they're not just names, they're not, you know, on top of the manuscript. For those, for me, they're my friends, people that, companions, that I spent more time with than real people. If you, if you count, you know, the amount of time I spent with Johann Sebastian Bach in the year, I probably spent more time with him than with any other human being, starting with my wife or my, my daughter. I'm fascinated. This book I mentioned I wrote about with the Russian character. It's mm. all about time, yeah. the nature of time. And uh, so I was really trying to meditate upon what our relationship with time is and why yeah. it is so combative. Yeah. And uh, I think time is really very different than how we we talk about it. We, we imagine we it. We perceive it just looking at the watch. It's yeah. not. It, yeah. This is just a measurements of, of to, to to you know to unify our you know movements or as you said you know the train schedule this we need that but it's not how time really works no i think time <laughs> does expand and contract exactly it has a nature and we if we don't understand that we think we have failed there was one day everything's on time you're great you're on your game the next day everything takes twice oh, as long exactly. and you think what did i do wrong got to get another management book exactly but maybe that day time was different it had different quality and i love this idea of uh when i'm in when i'm playing the fiddle or playing music or being creative how time can have a f such a different character very much so. and uh I guess what I'm going with this question is, when these friends of yours, do they still exist? 
is time is such a thing that their spirit, their soul, not just the ideas they left behind as if they are gone, but are they in some fundamental way still living I think spirits? very much so. You know, they, there, is, there is a theory also that man is never, or woman, or human being is never forgotten as long as we remember. Uh, that person now imagine with the composers I mean being played being recreated their works all the time you know by powerful uh, performers and by a group of you know orchestra and all of that I think I think they're very much alive the same goes with writers you know Shakespeare is probably more alive now than he was at the time whoever that person was we don't know <laughs> but <laughs> right. as Mark Twain said the, the greatest writer who never existed yeah <laughs> but anyway you it would know, have to be that way yeah you would have to be yeah because that sort of goes beyond that. no absolutely and I think for me they're real characters and and uh, you know or real pers- people you know, well, you take this idea of the live performance, and we'll, uh, the uh, you're performing or, or you're directing, right? Uh, conducting, I'm conducting, sorry, you're yeah. conducting. And you know, we talked about opera. Of course, with opera, you you have to watch what's going on, or everything, or, yeah, or ballet. Yeah. Ballet, yeah, ballet yeah. you have to maybe slow the tempo, pick it up, all that. But of course. if you're doing something like last night, which is more symphonic, you have. A sense of time. This is what we do this piece in. Mm. However, you've got this living audience, of course, that's operating in whatever's going on in their lives. Maybe it snowed on their way there. Maybe they couldn't find parking. They're bringing a kind of an energy to where they are with time. And then you have your musicians, and they are doing time. And I'm almost thinking, could there be this composer's soul that somehow comes in and? You don't maybe know that's what's going on, but suddenly the performance starts to take on a different character, moves absolutely. in a direction, and your job is to f- be the one who to, feels that. To, absolutely. You, you have to get into the much greater source of energy, and when that's what those are the moments we live for, because, you know, what's called inspiration or whatever, you know, the transcendental moment during the performance is when everything really works and you are part of something much greater than you are, because you are... In the eye of the storm as a conductor, you know, all that energy that's produced by the people on stage, plus the energy that's produced by the audience and your own. And then when something wonderful, something special happens, is this that's why we rehearse, because for many unprepared people who don't know how to deal with that force or unfamiliar, could be overwhelming and they could just be totally uh you know and then it will go because you need to hold on to it it's almost like you know you a little bit like um indian chiefs who you know call on greater you know the shamans you know they they call for that special power but then you need to hold on to that power and mold it and you know contain you know contain that power and then put it into the performance because in general uh, there are two interesting things I wanted to tell you before we finish. Uh, I often ask and tell musicians or in master classes, to you, which I rarely give, but still, I said, you know, these days, most people think that music is all about sounds. No, music consists of sound and silence. And today, the technical proficiency has gone up. And there are many, 
young performers who can produce exactly the notes that's written in the score and the right speed and the right sequence from memory and they could but there's no music there's no performance performance and interpretation lies between the notes is in that invisible ephemeral space that you can call time which you should be able to expand and contract you and those are the masters of time the ones who actually have the power to do it who not only mastered the notes but they mastered what's between the notes and, and your relationship with that space which makes you either a great performer or just a very good fiddler or pianist or instrumentalist or a good traffic controller conductor when you go beyond that then we're talking about something <laughs> that's one thing and as far as the audience somebody long time ago in 82 i think i was playing at the bach festival in würzburg and a major most important german critic actually uh, from, from from munich he told me at the discussion we were having he said you know at the beginning of the 20th century, somebody came up with this idea that a successful performance is like a triad of tonica, so that's the composer clearly, terza, third is the performer, and fifth is the audience. When all these three elements are in evidence, then, uh, and at a high level, then you have a wonderful performance. I said, yeah, I couldn't agree with you, Herr. Um, but... Kaiser, his name was Joachim Kaiser, was a very famous critic. I said, but, since we spoke English, I did not speak German at that time, I said, it was in English, you know, depending on that third, the chord could be the minor or major. Because <laughs> that third, the performer, either makes a minor performance or a major performance. And he thought, oh, what a clever young man. <laughs> I was. That was a, it was a good thought. So it is a triad, and the, the, the importance of the performance. But the, without that uh, third element, there's no performance. We can have a wonderful rehearsal. We can have wonderful working section. We can have wonderful ideas. But that audience brings that unknown and spontaneous element, that whole energy, whether it's an audience of 10 people or 10,000 people. And last question, because I know we have to go. So to take that idea one step further, and if you have a specific uh, incident that you could refer to, mm. when something happens, almost like the Star Wars idea, <laughs> right? There's the force. Force, right? yeah, yeah. That there is the web of life. Oh, definitely. And when something really happens, whether it's the... Uh, the terrorism that happened in Paris, mm. okay, or some other event in human history that just tears at the very soul of who we are as human beings or challenges us. Have you done a concert, you know, in the shadow of one of those events where you suddenly, you know, maybe that was the minor note, something was going on. Yeah. It wasn't just the audience in the room, but it was everything. Fortunately, I've been involved in, in, in a number of concerts, but, you know, there's something that doesn't have to be uh, sort of a world event. It could be also death uh, of a good friend. And then the audience could be moved. Uh, and depending on, I, I will never forget, 
doing Erbar Medich, a wonderful aria from Matteo's Passione. And I was at the a concert specially dedicated to a colleague of mine way back in 85. And uh, whoever was there, they still remember that, that concert because there was something there and his spirit certainly was there. And, you know, th those are the moments you, you remember. You don't, it's not necessarily, um, you know, just like in music, I often say, you know, it's not when you go on the big square and you, yell at the stadium of a hundred thousand people the most important moments of your life no they usually happen in the very quiet personal uh, moment and in music also sometimes the most special the sacred moments they happen in the very quiet um, period so it's it's a little bit of a contradiction in terms of we all want you know the big public event no it's not necessarily what how it affects you and how you perform of course it does affect you and uh you know during the i remember was a fantastic uh, performance of rostropovich playing dvorak concerto in london right after the soviets just, uh, you know marched into prague in 68 of course that brings a whole political thing but it does move you know and there is a special uh, feeling I, I remember also listening to beethoven triple concerto where oyster rostropovich and richter were coming and rostropovich just wrote that letter in defense of Solzhenitsyn, there was an incredible atmosphere in Moscow, you know, before they came out. And also, there, there are a number of moments where I, I, I was involved myself and I performed and I would remember as something special, extra musical. But one should be able to get into that zone almost at will. Uh, because if you have a connection to it, it's a lot easier to get there. You might not be received every time. It depends. And that's why we keep performing, because we're always waiting for that magical moment. Otherwise, why would we repeat the same thing all the time? I'd be bored stiff myself. And that's why I don't go to so many concerts, because very often it's just an ordinary recycling of familiar tunes. When I'm interested in something... Uh, vital and something special. That's why I'm there. <laughs> That's exactly right for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And before I say goodbye, I want to thank the good people with the Greensboro Symphony Orchestra, such as their president and CEO, Lisa Crawford, for their help in arranging my interview with Mr. Sikovetsky and their warm hospitality. Greensboro is a great town, and I highly recommend you visit there if you ever get the chance. ¶¶